Hello, this is Andrew Brewer. I am your host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing my guest, Dr. Joseph Alloy. He is the Section Chief for Endocrinology and Metabolism at Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem. Um, he is also uh, uh, focused on clinical and research in diabetes and diabetes prevention, mainly type 2 diabetes. Um, so a lot to talk about, I'm sure, and it's a big topic. So first of all, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I, I watched a video with you in it recently, and, and you know, you, you mentioned that diabetes, uh, especially type 2, is an epidemic here in the West. And how did we get here? Uh, lots of ways. I think it's uh, part of it is we're a victim of plenty living in a Western society, even though there's uh, food deserts. Um, food is reasonably accessible, but not healthy food. So starting around, you know, the 1950s, America has slowly been getting heavier and heavier and currently two thirds of the adult population is either overweight and obese. And when I talk to patients, a simple way to think of the connection is the more you weigh, uh, the more insulin you need to use to metabolize carbohydrates. And we all have a certain amount. And when you cross the line of how much you need versus how much you can make, and uh, then you develop a gap, and that gap is seen by having the inability to control your blood sugar. Uh, we also, same thing, you know, as everybody has a motor vehicle, we don't walk and pick out groceries, we don't farm, and we're designed to store food and eat food, but not to burn calories. So you, you put all that together and it's, you know, it's complex, but the good news is we know a lot about healthy lifestyles and a lot of patients that I see, if you kind of catch them early, which is why I'm interested in that preventing diabetes, the pre-diabetes, you can change the trajectory of weight gain and minimal exercise. I mean, 15 to 20 minutes of walking five out of seven days a week improves your ability to use carbohydrates, your insulin sensitivity by about 30%. And the hard part for most of my patients is finding the time to do these things. They're motivated, but, um, you know, it's, you got to find time for yourself in this busy world we live in. Yeah, well, I mean, you you mentioned some uh, preventative strategies. Um, if you had a magic wand, you could wave and just uh, you know put the answer out there. What what would be the all encompassing message for that? I think you have to start with um, knowing where you are. In other words, um, screening, and you know, currently. The American Diabetes Association recommends screening for for diabetes in anyone 35 and older with a risk factor. So being overweight, having a family member, having gestational diabetes. And when I was at Eastern Virginia Medical School, we did a big screening program. We screened about 7,000 people. And about half of them, these are adults, um, had pre-diabetes. And a good number had diabetes and wasn't aware of it. But the message there was, you know, identifying that 
really was the motivation for some people to do that walking. I mean, you have to be able to do simple things, you know, minimize carbohydrates, understand, you know, know what you're really eating. A lot of times when I'm seeing patients, I ask them to, not to do a food diary for months, but do it for a week and, you know, really see how many carbs you're eating. And that's sometimes a wake up call. But I think the magic wand is start with screening. Uh, you know, my, my job, is to help people manage their health. And part of that is if we go back and look, and if I'm in a room of politicians trying to get them to be interested in fund, I go around the room and I go, okay, how many people know their cholesterol? And everybody raises their hand. How many people know what their A1C is or what an A1C is? And about maybe a third. So I, that's what we did to help improve heart disease. We put out a national, uh, education program for cholesterol. Everybody gets, kids get their cholesterol now. So I think it's that type of um, messaging. And that's that's the key to getting started because we know some simple things will make a big impact in preventing the development of type 2 diabetes. Uh, so yes, yeah, simple screening, prevention, and knowing your A1C level, it's all good. good place to start. So what are the biggest, uh, I guess, uh, negative influences on behavior when it comes to nutrition do you see? I mean, there seems to be a lot of mixed messages over the decades with, you know, low fat, it just meant more sugar. Um, now we're, we're, we're getting more, I think, aware of good fats and balancing with my plate and stuff like that. You know, what... What what myths would you like to dispel, and 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 where should people focus on their nutrition? Well, I, I don't want to get people angry at me, but um, I'm real simple on this, and I part of the problem we have is if I send you in for education for diabetes, the current uh, ADA guidelines are a little outdated, so they're going to put you on a high carb diet or a higher carb diet than I would ever use. Um, if you're looking, two separate things, if you're looking at weight loss, the diet that works is the diet you can follow. I mean, we can put all of the bazillion diets out there, um, depending on your other health factors or some that are maybe a little bit better than others, but in general it has to be something you can follow because most of us, when we think of a diet, it's something you do to get to another place and then you stop it. And when that happens, you gain your weight back. So you have to be able to make a change in your life. Um, I think for my patients with diabetes, uh, just to give a couple examples. I mean, we've got labels and reading labels is very helpful. So it's portion size. We eat too much. I mean, I um, typically follow my own advice, but you know, if we go, if I go out to a restaurant with my wife, um, and they give me the huge plate of, uh, you know, five quesadillas, you know, I, I put half away before starting because we're all trained to clean our plate, right? Everybody was admonished by their grandmother or aunt, you know, finish your plate. The second thing is getting back to the carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are not bad. They're really helpful if you're running a marathon, if you're being very active farming, but we're not. We're sitting at a desk. Uh, we're taking a train, a car, a bus, a subway to work. And so 
even our in our own hospital, the standard breakfast uh, for non-diabetic, it's got about 200 grams of carbs in it. Well, and for people who don't know what that means, I mean, usually I'm trying to get people to stick to about 90 grams of carbs or 100 grams of carbs per day, so 30 to 40 per meal. And that's doable, and you don't have to do it every time, but that's a simple thing. And that can really change the difference in my patients on insulin or patients that are getting to the point where they need insulin with the advent of technology and being able to show people what their blood glucose looks like continuously through the day, they can see which meals really push it up. And my advice is pivoted a little bit from saying, you know, you've, you've got to start insulin, your blood sugars are too high to looking at, look, I'm not sure exactly what's happening with lunch, but your blood sugar burden during lunch is what's pushing your A1C up. Can we do something different with lunch? And I'd say about half the time, easily. Patients will say, okay, that's me going to Chick-fil-A and eating coleslaw and whatever. And okay, I'm going to do something different, you know, pick up more of a protein. And so it gets back to, I guess, I'm being re redundant or recurrent. It's the education because people can make better decisions and they don't have to go necessarily on a ketogenic diet. Um, some people uh, feel better doing that. And again, depending on other health consequences, it's generally safe, but it's not also a long-term solution. Well, I love what you said there about the, the best diet is one that you can follow and, and, and sustaining that behavior. And, and as a wellness coach, um, you know, I often hear the desired outcome versus the desired goal. So as I want to lose 50 pounds. Well, that's your outcome. How are you going to do this? How are you going to modify your lifestyle to get there? You know, and that's just an outcome of, of how you change your behavior today. So um, I think that's so important for people to understand is, is just that the difference between outcome goal and behavior goal and sustainable lifestyle management. And I've also heard the term there. Uh, there are no bad foods. There's there are bad diets, and I think that you kind of touched on that with the tendency to grab something fast and not really pay much attention and just you know s satisfy that hunger craving versus being mindful of your nutrition and and the amount of carbs. Because I think uh, you know I I watch carbs. I mean I, I'm I'm very dialed into this uh, where you know I'll go grab a tortilla since you mentioned quesadillas <laughs> and uh, uh i'll look at the carb content you know one quesadilla or one tortilla is 27 to 30 grams of carbs and so you eat a couple of those and you've reached your daily uh in, you know daily target for the amount of carbs so those are some things to take into consideration and then i guess paying attention to the amount of fiber and the total net carbs is it, it could be helpful too and that gets a little more advanced uh in in reading labels and things like that but it's something to be aware of um trying to come up with a question here uh i think uh i want to kind of move on i think we all know you know lifestyle and watching our our, our diets and and things like that are so important um i want to kind of skip over to your talk coming up at our november 4th 
24th Annual Diabetes Management Conference at Bridger Fieldhouse, a little plug there, um, and your title is talk, uh, talking about diabetes, technology in, in diabetes, um, and, and that may be for management, diagnosis, and all that. Can you riff on that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, my um, motto, I guess I would say, and, and this is really just, you know, a sound bite. In other words, there's always exceptions, but the um, the cure... Uh, for type 2 diabetes is what we already talked about, prevention, you know, and, and identifying people. Uh, I, I don't want to offend people when I say the cure for type 1, but the big intervention we can make for type 1 diabetes is technology. Um, we have automated insulin delivery. So we have glucose sensors, which I've, I've worn them on. I'm wearing one of the newer ones now to try it out which every five minutes measures the blood glucose, well, the fluid glucose under the skin, which mirrors the blood glucose. And it's compatible with Bluetooth. They can go to your phone. I saw a new patient yesterday who's blind. He can ask Siri, what's my blood glucose? And then Siri says, you know, it's 98, 99. I use maybe him as an example of okay, I'm not able to say you don't have type 1 diabetes anymore. I'm not able to say you don't have insulin. But compared to what we did 10 years ago, um, here's a guy that can be independent. He can know what his blood sugar is. And really, every 10 days, he changes out the particular sensor he's using. That's maybe one end of the extreme. Where we're learning more, and actually, I just saw an article yesterday for children and adolescents over the last five years, we've gone from about 15% of them, and these are largely type 1 diabetics, but not all, to about 40% of them are using sensors. And most of my patients really feel it's been life-changing. Coming back to the type 2 diet, and what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to run the spectrum um, from we've been able to use um, people part of that screening, okay, you're A1C, you have prediabetes, what does that mean, what do you do? Uh, I did this in rural, I did it in Wise, Virginia, which is in coal mining country, Appalachia. Uh, the Juvenile Diabetes uh, Research Foundation indirectly wanted a technology study there, so they helped pay for sensors, and we looked at patients with prediabetes, but what I'm getting at is if I show you what your blood glucose is doing over seven or 10 days, there's one gentleman who um, was doing his blood sugars by finger stick. He said, listen, I get up every morning, my blood sugar is 90 to 100. Your test is wrong. I don't have prediabetes. And we got his sensor and I can talk to him on a WebEx. I don't have to drive four hours to see him. And we're looking at the trend and every um, Tuesday and Thursday, he had his blood sugar going up to 300. And, he's, and people aren't, lying. They're not, it's just, you have to draw their attention and that's an easy, so I said, okay, what's happening Tuesday and Thursday? And he goes, that's, he coaches um, a little soccer league and he goes, and after soccer, we go out for pizza and I usually drink a regular soda with my pizza. He doesn't drink alcohol. And he said, I don't think I eat. He goes, well, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. And he stopped and his A1C dropped and his blood sugars were normal. Um, it can help pinpoint that. We're doing a little bit, a little separate group, but it's a group where technology is being used in a new way is women screening for gestational diabetes. 
with our current methodology, which makes a lot of women throw up when they drink all that horrible syrup at whatever interval, um, we miss about a third of those patients. And some research being done um, at Wake Forest and other institutions is looking at look what I just did with that gentleman who had prediabetes, put a sensor on that woman, see how much blood glucose is excursion. The nice piece about that is um, some sensors last for two weeks. Um, if you see somebody a week into it, you can look at the last seven days, you can make a simple intervention and they can see how it changes over the next seven days. Inpatient care with COVID, there are many reasons, but the FDA allowed emergency use authorization for using glucose sensors in the hospital. So you didn't have to go stick the finger of a patient frequently. You could place a sensor, you could be outside the room. We were able to do a lot of um, virtual consults, talk to the patient on their phone, look at their blood sugars, make recommendations. And we've been allowing, and there's a few papers trickling out, looking at that, what I'll just call automated insulin delivery, where the sensor tells an insulin pump how to deliver insulin uh, for relatively stable patients in the hospital. And it works really well. We don't have to take them off their pump. We, the, the algorithms in general uh, do a much better job of managing their blood sugars than I would if I was at the bedside. Um, if patients are very sick or they had a surgery and they're not awake, there's some situations where we don't do that. But I, a lot of that's relatively new and we've just published some data looking at the reliability of sensors versus standard of care. There's a group at Emory, there's a group at Hopkins, there's a group at Scripps in San Diego that are doing this. And we're just start starting to sort out the best way to use that technology in the hospital. And then I think the last thing I would say, it's been a crowd pleaser for some of my patients. You know, there's not a lot of endocrinologists and, you, and for some of the technology, it advances very quickly. So I've got patients on, insulin pumps and sensors that their family doc doesn't feel comfortable with. They live in West Virginia, Tennessee. I can very easily FaceTime them with, you know, a HIPAA compliant app that we have. I can pull up their data and we can troubleshoot. And maybe I only need to see that patient once a year. And that really allows people to feel like they're engaged, they're being taken care of, and they don't have to drive six hours, three hours to see me just so that they can get their supplies and their um insulin and so forth so that's a lot of what i'm going to be talking about i'm going to contrast that i would just the last thing i'll say is we're all aware of the high cost of insulin and but what i'm contrasting is that we're about 101 years or 102 years since insulin was isolated and uh we've evolved over that time from you know intramuscular injections three times a day to now we can really fine-tune the insulin delivery so, and there's more to come. There's more stuff coming. So kind of a quality of care increase and a scalability to reach more patients with telemedicine and, and sensors and all that. So, Annette, lots of, lots of progress in that, that area. And speaking of progress, I mean, I know we know a lot more about our genomes and, and genetic makeups. And I know in uh, you, you've said how, like, just, I mean, I know this from coaching too. some of the questions that are about, um, you know, just having a certain ethnic background makes you higher risk. Is that genetic or is that just sort of cultural or a combination of both? I think it's a little bit cultural. I mean, I think, 
you know, we have a stroke, obesity, and diabetes belt in the Southeast. And I think a large part of that is cultural. If you look at the genetics behind it, uh, people that have ancestors that lived on islands, they're very uh, programmed to be able to go a long time without eating. So they, it's very, their body is very tedious about giving up any calories. So the, if you measure insulin sensitivity or the converse of that insulin resistance, the most insulin resistant populations are native people from the Caribbean islands, from the Hawaiian islands, from the Philippine islands followed by um, African-Americans, followed by Latinos, followed by Caucasian, European, Northern Europeans. Um, I think in the modern society, it doesn't mean you're doomed, but it does mean when you look at those other risk factors, there's a ADA five point thing, but it says, you know, are you overweight? Do you have this? Do you have a family member? with type two diabetes, um, the, st the strength of that is, so when I'm going to communities and sometimes I go to church groups to get them engaged with this, if in a study we did, or I was not involved with, but the University of Virginia did when I was there, they looked at um, communities in the neighborhood, but they found that if you were African-American, overweight, and had a first degree, so a, a brother, sister, aunt, uncle, with type two diabetes, your risk of having type two diabetes before age 50 was like 80%. I mean, so that's pretty compelling. And they use that as intervention in some of the churches for people to get screened. I think the, the argument is still going back and forth. Uh, the nephrology division at Wake Forest has isolated a gene that's specific in African-Americans that really dramatically increase your risk for renal disease. Um, they can screen for that. That makes them very eager to understand. But I, I, there's a big ongoing argument whether it's uh, whether it's true, true and related, whether there's really racial differences. Because when you turn around the other things that drive into this, it, it, it travels with where communities are. You know, a lot of the food deserts in our local area are around largely African-American communities. So is it the food? issue or is it their heritage? I think um, I like to be a glass half full person, but if you look at drug therapies and all the interventions we have, they work in all people. So I, um, when I think about ethnicity, race, I think about it more as trying to get people's attention. And yes, I want to screen you in your 30s. And maybe if you're Scandinavian and not overweight, we can wait till you're 50. I mean, and from a practical point of view, that's how it changes my perspective, but it doesn't change um, the need. I think, again, just screen, it's inexpensive, $7, screen for mm -hmm. diabetes, and I just screen everybody. Well, I think, I mean, it, it, this brings up a lot of different places I could go with this, but I just wanted to plug, I mean, that, <laughs> I know we, we try to do all this anti-bias training, but in medicine, bias gives us signals to pay attention to, I think, in, in that. So if you are meeting these ethnicity boxes, then that raises your 
propensity to to have this type of of disease or or this the this you know maybe need to pay more attention to it and then the other part of that is just the I mean, it's fascinating, and we could go real deep, and we don't have time for that, but the evolutionary responses to how our cultures developed and, and the different, you know, uh, I guess, environments that we grew up in. And my, my anecdotal uh, story is I, I started, uh, I lived in the Caribbean in the early 2000s, and, you know, it was always great because you could get those Cokes in the glass bottles, and they had cane sugar in it, and this is going to lead to a question here. Um and then about 2003, they started importing the two-liter plastic bottles from the U.S., which was high-fructose corn sweetener. Totally different animal, I think, and that's where my question's leading. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about glycemic index and how, you know, all calories may not be created equal and things like that? Because a lot of people think that, oh, if I just reduce my calories, I'm going to lose weight. Um, but that may not have any impact on type two or your insulin responses. Yeah, that's a good question. The, um, the glycemic index is sort of a way to look at what particular food, how much it's going to change your blood sugar. And, you know, we talked a lot and about what to take out of your diet, but I think this is a good opportunity to say, and you kind of briefly mentioned fiber, but there's lots of things you can add to your diet to help improve your glycemic control fiber being one and a very simple way of looking at this is maybe it's a bad example but when i'm talking to patients i talk about they all everybody knows how many miles per gallon they get in their car so if they have a fuel efficient car maybe they get 30 or 40. they have an old pickup truck it may be 20 or whatever but when you think about it just sitting still your body can easily manage your minute to minute metabolism but when you're eating that's challenging that pancreas that's when it has to do its job to put out a lot of insulin and how quickly that glucose signal goes up in other words so if you're drinking that we'll talk about high fructose syrup but anyway any carbonated um, high sugar content sugary beverage that blood sugar goes up very quickly well um I'm older now, and I can tell you my blood sugar, that's the highest it'll go. If I do something like that, it'll go up to 160. My, my pancreas can't keep up. Well, what if I did that? It sounds horrible. It doesn't sound very tasty, but I'm going to give an example where we do this. But if I put some fiber in with that and slows down the digestion, then maybe my blood sugar doesn't peak. It spreads out that rapid rise. Um, and a lot of our patients with gestational diabetes, sometimes, um, you know, they're pregnant, they sometimes have morning sickness, they have snacks that they want to eat. And sometimes, and they, they think I'm crazy when I say this, but you can do a little better job if you put a little uh, powdered Metamucil and mix it on top of flavorless, but they put it in some of their meals to spread out the blood sugar. High fructose corn syrup, it's hard for us to metabolize. I'll just put it that way. It's not a naturally occurring product, but when we were industrializing and we're thinking of what to do with some of all the um, corn that we didn't use for other things, and it became a, a thing we could add to products. And if you look at some of your, um, you know, and I'm not um, perfect. I if I've got a busy day and I am working real hard, I will drink a diet Mountain Dew. But but if you look at those, and my 
group that I really try and push on this is I've had truck drivers. They fail their truck driving physical because their blood sugar is too high. They're trying to stay awake and they're drinking two or three two liter regular Mountain Dews or Coca-Cola or Pepsi. And if they stop that, we can cure their diabetes. But to take a little deeper dive on all the bad things associated with the high fructose corn syrup, because it's difficult to metabolize, it also has other issues where some of your other things, and the one that I'm acutely aware of is uh, uric acid, which is a thing that drives gout, goes up. And that, along with the high fructose, which is coming in, which is not glucose, uh, goes down another metabolic pathway and it makes you a lot more insulin resistant. And some people feel it should be banned, it should be out, but it's the difference. You gave a good example of, you know, same calories, maybe drinking sugar cane, you know, natural sugars. I mean, for some of my patients, yeah, you can use artificial sweeteners, but if you're just using, you know, raw sugar in your coffee, it's not that many calories and it's absorbed a little slower. And so, I don't want people to feel like it's a maze to eating, but this is again, being just very practical um, where you can get a lot of information about eating habits, our weight management sensor, and this is not like a commercial for sensors, but they're just putting sensors on people to help them figure out what diet and food choices. And there's early data that, you know, you're not gonna lose 50 or 20 pounds, but you might lose, 10 or 15 pounds and it helps you with those food selections well what's not being measured is not being managed is the old axiom so that that holds true and and just to add on to my caribbean anecdote around 2003 is when those bottles came in with the fructose and i had not seen many fat kids up to that point and then on subsequent visits down there there's a lot more fat kids now also in 2003 what happened so it'd be hard to 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 hold a variable constant was the introduction of cell phones so that you know that that made a lot more people sedentary that weren't used to so i think that was a double whammy that 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 hit hit some of those islands that i noticed anyway i mean it was very very non-scientific observations no but it's a problem there and you think of these you know if you think of haiti if you think of the minute you think okay this is a country that's poor doesn't know what so how could we be worried about obesity and type two diabetes? But a, a good friend of mine, uh, she's a cardiologist at UVA, Angela Taylor, has a big type two diabetes intervention problem going on in the Dominican Republic because they have a lot of type two diabetes now. And some of that is lots of sugary beverages. Some of that is now that you have a cell phone, you can play a video game instead of walk to talk to your neighbor. I mean, it's, it's complex, but... Mm-hmm. Poverty doesn't save you from being obese. <laughs> it's, yeah, definitely. Now, you, you said the word cure. Um, for those, uh, you know, just to, to demystify, you know, type 2 diabetes, it is something that's completely reversible, isn't it? If it's not gone on too long, I guess. Right. I, was, I think sometimes type 2 diabetes gets a bad name because it's, well, geez, if you just lived right, you wouldn't have it. So we talked about all those genetic, social interactions, and not all, about 90% of type 2 diabetes are obese, but 10% aren't. I you know, saw a gentleman yesterday, he's lighter than I am, and he's struggling with his diabetes. So that's why I like to go back to, you know, when you were put together, you had a certain amount of insulin you can make, 
And so for somebody who's can make enough, if they're 20 pounds lighter, that's, that's our, a great option. If you, so I think it's, it's comes back to why you want to screen people early. I don't know that we know that if I get you early, I know I can delay the type two diabetes. Um, we haven't been doing this long enough to know that I can delay it for your whole life because I just talked about me. I'm a little bit older. I've been doing this for a long time. You know, my fasting blood sugar is, you know, rising slightly because as you age, your pancreas doesn't, you know, work as well. Now I'm still, you know, 70 when I get up in the morning, but I used to be 60 and you'll see this. So some of this is age related. So I'm not going to be able to, you know, you can live a very healthy lifestyle, but remember, the complications of type two diabetes take 10 or 15 years. So if I get you at 35 and I delay it 20 years, uh, you may never have complications if you develop your type two diabetes when you're 80 or 70. Um, if you take an extreme example, and that's why I think some people think of it, weight loss as a cure, is in patients that undergo gastric bypass, that have type two diabetes. Now they define cure generally as not needing medicines for diabetes. So big picture, 85% of those patients will not need any medicine for their diabetes out to five years. There's a slow increase in the uptake of needing new medicines, but it, it can be very dramatic. Um, many patients, we stop all their medicines for diabetes at the time of surgery and they could be three or four medicines, but generally some of it's being tapered as they get ready for surgery. So I see weight, um, and when I'm talking about weight, I'm talking about extra body fat as a big contributor to your, um, I'll just say your glycemic burden. And sometimes I'm talking to patients, I talk about it in credit card type of sense, but it, there's a big interplay between your weight and insulin requirements and then what your blood sugar does. So it's, you know, again, good news. If we catch people early, you know, and you talked about goals and, you know, where you start, people don't need to have a normal body weight, whatever, however we define that. They need, if I catch you early, to lose 10 or 15 pounds to get off the trajectory. If we look at one complication of, hyperglycemia, pre-diabetes and type two diabetes, fatty liver, which can lead to cirrhosis. Um, the GI docs are trying to get people to lose 12 or 15 pounds. That will help reverse that extra fat. Uh, the way, just a brief, well, why does that happen? Well, your body has to do something with all that extra glucose. Part of what it does is it turns it into fat and it stores it in your muscle and it stores it as much as it can there, but it, the, the big place it stores it is in your liver. And it, if you have a lot more there than you're designed to carry, that's when you get fatty liver, which then eventually irritates the liver, cause inflammation there, and, and in some patients, cirrhosis. Um, so, yeah, it's related to a question I had, uh, a couple parts to it. Um, one is, uh, the the tax on the liver and and how much uh, 
does alcohol play a, a, a part in that for people who drink? Um, you know, ha how detrimental that is or how causal that is to type 2 diabetes. And the other thing is, what tax does it put on your immune system when you're in di type 2 diabetes? Because I know there's, you know, in today's world, post-COVID, or I guess we're post-COVID, um, or at I least hope. we're in endemic, yes. Yeah. So, you know, what, you know, when we talk about lifestyle as the immune system boost you know is is that true and and how much load does having type 2 diabetes you know pressure your your immune system in my anecdotal evidence is when i uh go to the store and buy a half gallon of ice cream in the moments of weakness that i do that um and i eat too much of it i generally within the next 24 to 48 hours will have a cold sore on my lip so i'm one of those with i guess it's hpv1 or something one of those or h whatever that is that causes those but i think that is a sugar taxing my immune system to the point where my body responds negatively so is that is there any truth to that well in the short term i'm not sure and i'm that immunology is not my strong suit but when you look at using covid because we called out people with type 2 diabetes as, or diabetes in general like we vaccinated those people at a younger age. They were put at the front of the line. I think if we look at just elevated blood sugars, and when you get above a blood sugar of 180, and just to make numbers even, 200, your white cells, the guys that fight infection and make antibodies don't work as well, at least in a test tube. We know that if you come in for surgery and your blood sugar is uncontrolled, you're more likely to have a wound infection from the surgery. You're more likely to need um, kidney replacement. In other words, you might have a kidney injury. But in general, for most of my patients, if you're doing a good job of managing your diabetes, that difference is very small. But if you take a step back and say, well, how are people in the country doing? About half of the patients with diabetes in the country have an A1C of eight or higher, which is roughly a blo average blood glucose at 200 or higher. So one of my friends was asking me, I saw him a few weeks ago, um, he doesn't have diabetes, but he has a heart condition. And he goes, every time they, why do they keep asking me if I have diabetes when I come into the hospital? He goes, can't they say, and I said, well, they're gonna be a little bit more focused with your heart problem if you have diabetes. So the um, connection with alcohol is evolving because we've gone from thinking a little bit of alcohol is certainly safe and maybe beneficial. There's actually a study I didn't qualify for in older patients with um, our geriatrics division looking at drinking a glass of wine and they actually provided the wine, you know, with supper. My grandparents are Italian, my grandfather lived to 90 and he had a small glass of red wine with dinner every night. So there's this question, do uh, reservatol and red wines help? And I will tell you that's come into question. I don't know where the absolute answer is, but if you look at alcohol, it gets converted relatively quickly into glucose. It's a carbohydrate largely. And it also inhibits your liver from making glucose. So it's a little bit mixed. My general advice that I give for patients when I distill all that down is uh, if you're taking insulin and drinking a glass of wine 
in moderation, you need to be realized that you need to eat because the acute effect is actually to raise the blood sugar a little bit, but the effect an hour or two later is to drop your blood sugar. So my type one diabetics going off to college, you may have alcohol for the first time. I caution them that they can get, so not to be aggressive about treating that quick rise and to make sure you have something to eat with it. Very good, very good. So we'll switch gears. Um, we'll humanize you now that we've tapped your brain for all the clinical stuff. You a Terrapin fan or Cavalier fan, or neither, um, or Deacon? Deacon. 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 Yeah. Well, actually, one of my good friends used to be the mascot for the University of Maryland Terrapins, Jimmy Wand. I don't know where he's been, but he. So that was my. So I was a fan of uh, Jimmy when he was doing the Terrapin. But all right. Well, what does Doctor Lloyd do in, in in your your free time, if if you have any? Wife manage our little horse farm here in North Carolina. So she trains dressage horses. I help manage the, uh, I got a lot of grass to cut because we have 18 acres and there's always something to do at the farm. Uh, I like to hike and climb. I've been clipping off the 14ers in Colorado. I've got about 20 left. So I hope to get it done before I'm 80. Right on. Fine. But that's, that's in a nutshell what we do. Keeps us busy. So you have a bush hog tractor and all that stuff. I, I, I rely on the kindness of neighbors for the bush hog, but I kind of keep the perimeter stuff. I've got a small mowing deck that's about not enough to do it quickly. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate your time this morning, and thank you so much for coming on. All right, Andrew. Enjoyed it.